BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, I'm Paco Romaine. And I'm George Chen. And welcome to SubDoc, a show where we review and recommend documentaries with guests from the worlds of comedy, TV, film, and more. Today's documentary is For Mad Men Only, and our guests are the director Heather Ross and actor James Urbanik. This doc is currently streaming on Amazon, Google Play, and Apple TV, and premieres on Hulu later this fall. For Mad Men Only is an intimate look at the tremendously influential comedy and improv guru Del Close. The doc is an eye-opener for anyone unfamiliar with this improv family tree that includes Bob Odenkirk, Adam McKay, Amy Poehler, Elaine May, and Bill Murray. Our guest, Heather Ross, is an Emmy-winning director and producer. She directed for Mad Men Only and has directed and produced programs for HBO, NBC, Fox, Discovery, A&E, and more. James Urbanik is an actor and writer known for American Splendor, The Venture Brothers, and Difficult People. James portrays Del Close in for Mad Men Only. And now here are Heather and James. All right, so uh, welcome to SubDoc, and we are talking about the uh, 2021 documentary for Mad Men Only. Um, so thank you very much for being here, Heather. James, thank you for being here. Uh, it's wonderful to have you guys as guests. And I, right off the bat, love this documentary. Great. You know, you know, I have to say, first of all, Heather, thank you for not making a series. <laughs> a series about Dell? <laughs> yes. Uh, just like a series and like now documentaries come in like 10 pack series and like it's just sometimes I just don't have the time. I don't have the time. And now I just appreciate a nice 90 minute documentary. It's so wonderful. I can't tell you how how wonderful that is. <laughs> I think that's about how much time you want to spend with Dell Close. <laughs> <laughs> Ken Burns, Dell Close. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. They both have weird haircuts. That's what keeps them close. Um, but so I, I really enjoyed it. Like I find like bi- biographical documentaries can sometimes be hard, especially if the person's dead and been dead for a while and there's not a lot of footage and you have to do a lot of recreations and stuff. Like sometimes it's hard um, to to like get a feel for the guy, to understand what's going on, and to to get like a, a feel of the time and the presence. But you did a wonderful job of putting all that together. So, thank you. Thanks. It was yeah. It's a challenge because he's long gone, and he didn't leave a huge record behind him. You know, he was sort of an obscure figure, so we had to really dig for ways to tell his story and. Thankfully, and we had James yeah, in our corner. Yes, James. That was. Did you did you work with Dell at all, James? Did you get a chance to to uh, work with him, or what? I mean, no. do you have an improv background? No, I don't at all. Uh, I I have a a theater background. I, I was in New York for many years doing theater, uh, but I was always really interested. I, I'm sort of very interested in all aspects of showbiz history. So I was just interested in the history of improv in Second City, and I'd done a lot of reading about it. 
Like I'd actually read uh, uh, Kim Johnson's biography of Dell, which I, he's a talking head in the in the film, and uh, I uh, so I was interested in the subject matter, uh, even though I don't have that training. And then Heather knew who I was as an actor and just approached me, but she didn't know that I had this interest. It just sort of worked out, <laughs> as a matter of fact. So yeah, I I I I was very, very interested in, in the history of, like, uh, particularly that generation, right. like Dell and the people from the Compass Players, who he was a part of, which sort of spawned Nichols and May and then later spawned Second City. I was very interested in that, that part of uh, sort of improv history. And I got to say, when I was very young, thinking about becoming a professional actor before I moved to New York, I grew up in New Jersey. I thought about going to Chicago, and I, I thought well, maybe I could go to Second City and apply or something, but I lived in New Jersey. It was easier to move to New York, and then right. I just kind of fell into the theater world, so that was my decision. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like it, there's a t there was a time, I've, I feel like now, like, there's, if you want to move to Austin or Portland or fucking Akron or something, you'd be like, yeah, I could do that. It's not that hard now. You have like these pods that pick up your pods that move your stuff. And it's what a, like, I, I remember when I was growing up moving to, to cause I live in San Francisco, moving to California. I'm from Michigan, moving to California seemed like, like this, like it's never going to happen. It seems like this like mystical place that I will never get to, you know? So like for me, Chicago was close. So I spent a lot of time in Chicago, but like the idea of moving, like a few, a couple thousand miles away seems so weird and distant. <laughs> Heather, where'd you grow up? I grew up in LA. I'm third generation LA. Very rare. <laughs> that is very rare. What, what part of LA? I grew up by the airport, just like right under the jet trails, <laughs> <laughs> the chemtrails. But um, I've lived all over the city now. Now I'm east on, in Eagle Rock. Oh, nice. nice. That's nice. George lives in LA. Yeah, I mean, Los Feliz. Yeah. East side. <laughs> you got to like, represent. Yeah. yeah, I'm down with that. Um, um, Heather, do you, you said that you had sort of come to this story from working on another doc that was based in Chicago. Were you spending a lot of time working in Chicago prior to this? And what was the film that you were working on there? I went to Chicago for the first time and like started filming that day. Like oh. I, I basically moved and uprooted. That was my big uprooting was coming from LA to Chicago when I was like in my late twenties and um, about to make my first feature documentary, which took place in a teenage girl's prison. Very different. It was like a hardcore verite doc. Um, and you know, and then I was also faced with this crazy city of Chicago, which was so different from L.A. And not I mean, I love it so much, but like kind of like the antithesis of, you know, <laughs> L.A., sunny, shiny. Um, so and it, it was great. I was there all alone and I was hanging out with, you know, women in prison and they were the best. They were so smart and funny and sharp, sharp, sharp. And I had always been a comedy nerd um, and gone to stand-up shows a lot. And it just made me start thinking like, okay, if these kids can be this funny and like so honed in their wit, like there's something going on here that's more than just like, give me attention. <laughs> you know, like there's comedy is, and and like honing the that vocabulary of comedy is a part of a survival mechanism maybe, or a way of approaching things that are 
hard to approach. Um, so, you know, as I was digging into that, I was also hearing all the lore about Chicago comedy and uh, this guy, Del Close, who sort of loomed over all of it and had a needle hanging out of his arm. And, you know, it just <laughs> was like, gotta, gotta find out what that, you know, if anyone knows about the, you know, the connection between darkness and comedy, like that guy probably knows. Jeez. Yeah, that is. I mean, he reminded me of he's like the Hunter S. Thompson of comedy, you know, like like watch. I had no I mean, I've I'm a huge comedy nerd. George and I are both comedians and I studied improv and sketch. I didn't know any of this stuff about. I mean, I knew like the origin of of Second City and even Harold and that kind of stuff. But I didn't know like this kind of background of Del Close. I didn't realize, especially like the the story of his father, which is. Um, if true or not insane, you know, like to, to like, there's, there's always like a, like a disapproving father figure in a lot of these stories, you know, <laughs> like the origin of comedy is like a, a distant mom and a dis- disapproving father, <laughs> you know, like, uh, so like to, to find out that like he was just gobbling pills and smoking and, and snorting, everything was kind of kind of nuts did this did that surprise you like finding for either james or heather did finding out this information about dell was it surprising i mean you i guess you read uh, his the uh, biography but yes, no it wasn't surprising to me i mean i knew a little bit about that already but i when i first learned about that stuff it just seemed you know it's partially generational i mean he's born in the 30s he's he's like officially pre-60s generation, but he's a creative person. And he, so he, you know, when the culture started experimenting with drugs, he started experimenting with drugs and perhaps took it a little further than he should have. <laughs> well, there's experimenting. But, you know, that was just sort of, that was, you know, he was drawing from the same well that a lot of people were drawing from, metaphorically. <laughs> right. <laughs> or maybe not. It's probably a bad well somewhere in his land. But. He is from Kansas. I think, <laughs> I think they have bad wells in Kansas. Yeah. I mean, it's just shocking that you can have that kind of input and have that many, that much, you know, drugs in your system, you know, and to constantly like, I mean, I've had a couple benders in my life, but Jesus, you know, like that's, that's insane. I definitely heard from people who worked around him at various points that like students would, you know, come and see how he lived and start thinking, yeah, I could, I, I could and should do that. And they had to be walked and told to the side, nobody can do that. We don't know why he's still alive. Oh, if you saw wow. him without his shirt on, you would see all the track marks. Like, do not do what he does. There's no reason. You, you can't, he might be able to survive it. You can't. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's really interesting. I wonder if like how much of an influence on Belushi that might've been. Were they close? Do you know if, like, if he... They were super close. Were they? Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's all kinds of apocryphal stories about uh, their abuse. Oh, together? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, yeah, Dell was a big fan of Belushi's at Second City and definitely was a mentor to him. But, you know, creatively. And, you know, Belushi's a younger guy who's more of the boomer generation, so he's going to be getting into drugs. But, you know, when... He met him. He wasn't a star with a lot of money. So then right. later on, and that's actually an issue in Dell's life, is people that he mentored becoming very successful and wealthy. Uh, and Dell, for various reasons, not becoming that, uh, partially his own choice, really, mm. and the way he, he lived his life. 
But uh, yeah, he, he was a, definitely a mentor to Belushi and loved his energy. But, you know, I don't think you can blame Del Close for Belushi over, you know, overdosing at the Chateau Marmont. He sure. was in a different world when that happened. <laughs> he was in a different world, but uh, Bob Woodward, when he did the, uh, the story about Belushi. Wired? The, the controversial. Wired, the controversial. The very controversial. Wired. The unauthorized biography. Yes. He did point the finger at Del. And oh. um, we'll get in people. line. <laughs> get in line, Bob Woodward. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Apparently, they they like some talk show host had them both on together and was like going to try to get them no. you know, to fisticuffs. And Dell went on and was just like, Bob Woodward, you know, you took you took down, you know, Nixon. I whatever you say, I'll cop to it. You know, he like basically yes handed Bob Woodward. Whoa. I bet Del Close could kick Bob Woodward's ass, though. I don't know. Bob Woodward is kind of a jockey bro from... Is he? You know, yeah. Woodward is? He's a healthy lad. (laughs) He is a healthy lad. You're right. Where's he he from? The hinterlands? He's from from Illinois. He's from Wheaton. Oh, okay. Those are... Yeah, that's why he's he's got the flattest Midwestern accent in America. Yeah, I guess he does. When you hear him talk. Yeah, it's up here. <laughs> yeah. It's very flat. Flat A's. Yeah. yeah. Richard Nixon. <laughs> yeah. But no, Woodward, Woodward's a bit of a bro. He could he could take care of him. Oh, I didn't know that. I that's think a- Woodward would be Dell in a fight. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Physically. Physically. Right, right. That's interesting. When we have a Dell hologram, we'll try Oh, it. my God. That would be awesome. Carl Bernstein, I'm not sure, because Bernstein might try to avoid physical. Uh, yeah, he's... He's not going to find anybody. Yeah, he's more of a he's more of a someone who talks it out with people. Uh, In a smoking competition, though, that between a very good Bernstein point, and Dell. Heather. Yeah, a smoke off. Mm-hmm. It's anybody's game. Cigarettes or <laughs> weed? Like, what are we talking? Joints? Or what? Are, what are you? I think probably <laughs> cig- cigarettes. I, oh, okay. I was thinking cigarettes. Oh, okay. You know, okay. Okay. That sure. reminds me. I was going to ask. Uh, James, for the recreations of those scenes, are you actually smoking regular cigarettes or those prop cigarettes? I don't. I think they were probably the, the standard herbal ciggies that one uses in film these days. I don't remember what they were, but they weren't like serious yeah, yeah, cigarettes, yeah. definitely. And and did you have to? Did you watch a lot of footage of of Delta's like try to do an impersonate? Oh yeah, or, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I. I uh, you know, there was only there's limited stuff online, but Heather had some very good footage, mm-hmm. uh, some video of him teaching classes and things, and then some very one thing that was very useful was there's a writer named Janet Coleman who wrote a book about the Compass Theater, which was like Improv Company One in the United States, you know, Company Zero in the fifties, and he was a part of that, and he did long, uh, very interesting interviews. Uh, with Janet Coleman, which get very conversational. So that was really helpful, was listening to mm-hmm. uh, those interviews. Um, but yeah, like in the, for those who don't know, in the film, sort of a through line for the film is Dale Close worked uh, on this comic book. And uh, uh, we sort of have, they're not really reenactments, they're sort of... Uh, how would you describe them, Heather? <laughs> we kind of call them Fantasias. Okay. That's good. They're Fantasias. Fanta- yeah, yeah. That's. They're they're sort of yeah, uh, sort of fantasy scenes of Dell dealing with real people like John Astrander, his co-writer, 
uh, on the uh, on the comics, and then um, sort of fantasies because he had a very he was a great storyteller and a sort of self mythologizer. So he would talk about you know. Uh, so all these people he met, like he talked about knowing L. Ron Hubbard and giving him the idea for Scientology. <laughs> you kind of have to take these with a grain of salt, you know. But so we have these scenes where he's talking to some of the sort of mythical figures from his past as well as people from uh, his real life. But the, the things he says, the dialogue is all, is all based on things he actually said. Mm-hmm. Uh, out of context sometimes, but verbatim, you know, the scenes are created using his actual words from... Uh, interviews and things he wrote and so forth. Were those interviews, did you have to dig for those interviews at all? Was that something that was archival somewhere or were they, is this public? Were you able to find those interviews? No, we had to go into people's, you know, the backs of their filing cabinets and desk drawers and garages. But, you know, people were kind of tickled to find out that we would want to <laughs> get in there. And, you know, often people would come to us with like, I don't know, I taped this off the TV in 1979. Do you want it? Yes. So, you know, it's a, it's a definite quilt of right. material of different yeah. kind of yeah. varying qualities, but we kind of leaned into the right ephemera, the feeling of ephemera. It's a, delight, it's a delightful tapestry. Are you saying there's not a Blu-ray of the blob? Is there a Blu-ray of the Blob? There should be a Blu-ray of the Blob. That movie holds up, by the way. Oh, my God. His movie appearances are all out there. (laughs) In fact, I was watching Michael Mann's Thief yesterday, and suddenly Dell shows up for like five seconds. Really? Yeah, it was shot in Chicago. Right. And he he shows up as a mechanic very briefly. (laughs) Wow. That's like, oh, there he is. So, Heather, as this is something I've always wanted to know as a director, how, how do you find like, do you put this stuff in Craigslist? Like, hey, if you have Dell Close cassettes, like I'm looking for some like, how do you find people that have a videotape of something off a of TV of Dell Close from 78? I mean, this was very old fashioned. We just talked to people, man. Like it was very analog. I just started You know, I was I knew who the players were because, you know, just out of like, you know, hearsay and um, we, you know, I got an intro to someone who worked at um, I.O., which is a theater that Dell started with Sharna Halpern. And, you know, I just like talked my way in there like a bad salesman. And, you know, once he started talking to people, they said, oh, you should probably talk to this guy or that guy or don't talk to this person or definitely Tell, you know, like, don't tell him I sent you, but. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but so. his, he was such an influential and beloved figure that, you know, when people realized this was going on, my impression is they were very supportive of it. And then, you know, people have their own archives. I mean, Bob Odenkirk, uh, what was he in college at the time? Yeah. When he was a college student, he, he interviewed Del Close on like a little cassette uh, uh, wow. So, you know, there's just people, personal stuff. Did Janet Coleman give you those, uh, in- audio of the interview she did? She did. Yeah. She did. Yeah. So I think people were, you know, happy to share stuff once the word got out. And there's, there's a, there's a very connected network of people who knew him and worked with him who think he's important. So I yeah. think they, they wanted to get the information out. So once the word got out that this film was being made. I think people were, you know, happy to help out and, and find uh, material. Did you did you find that it, it was 
easy for people to get close to Dell or was he one of those kind of like arms distance until I got to know you kind of people? Was it easy to know like who Dell was? Were, were there anyone that was like, I was his best friend? Did you hear that a lot or was it the Oh opposite? man, no. I think the number of people who could claim to be close to Dell, close, <laughs> is right. probably very, very small. I mean, even, like people, even like Matt Walsh, who, you know, is founding member of UCB and very tied to Dell's legacy, said like, I don't even know if he knew my name. <laughs> like, you know, he was sort of, especially at that, you know, at that stage in his career, mm -hmm. in his 50s, you know, he was sort of floating above the, you know, the tree line there a little bit and not necessarily right. engaging with everybody. Um, yeah, like, yeah, a lot of people who were people on TV would come back and Dell would be like, ah, I think I had you in a class. And, you know, they'd have to remind him. But right. there were a few people he was very close with and, and we were privileged to talk to a few of them. Um, but he and, then there, and then there are people that he felt very uh, close with, like Elaine May, who he held a lifelong torch for. Uh, yes. But that, I feel like that could be its own documentary. Oh. Like the I'm sure many, I'm sure many people yeah. held a lifelong torch for Elaine May. Yeah. But he, he, I do too. Yeah, we all do. We but all do. Uh, <laughs> that was a big one for him. Fucking Nichols. <laughs> God damn that man. <laughs> if I, uh, well, let's. Yeah, Mike, I love Mike Nichols, but it, from Dell's POV, Mike Nichols becomes a kind of foil. Right. Uh, in well, the documentary. The first yeah, chat. If, <laughs> yeah. If you watch chat. an '80s movie, who do you like more, the disheveled genius or like the Bryce guy that went to like Stanford that has the blonde hair and goes skiing? You know, which would be Nichols in this example. He would definitely be played by James Spader in the '80s movie. Fuck, you're this. right. You're so right. He would. And that's so right. kind of weirdly like the through line of like everyone that he m worked with later becoming huge. Right. That had to be a little bit of a, a thorn in the side or like. Can you imagine? So bitter. I, I mean, I, yeah. I feel like we've all kind of been around people that been like, oh, they they got big. And then you kind of like <laughs> think about like. Oh yeah, like w w whether it's like music or filmmaking or acting or comedy or whatever, like like there's the people that you're just kind of like, well, I guess I might be a footnote in their biography, maybe. But it's <laughs> it's great to like. Well, I was thinking a lot about what you're saying about mentoring earlier, and like I think a lot of kind of like what he's known for is kind of this mentoring aspect. But I think you you talk about like how the Herald is a unique creation unto itself, and like that's like his magnum opus in a sense, right? Like, I think that seems to be like both, like, it's not just the influence he had on all these people that became hugely successful. It's like he was trying to create a new genre and he actually succeeded in doing that. I think that- Yeah, and it was nice. over the course of a couple of decades that he mm -hmm. kept refining it and figuring it out. And then it was uh, another, his, his great partner, uh, uh, Sharna Halpern, who really kind of helped him yeah. Uh, break that down and kind of codify it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, uh, near the end of his life. Yeah, it's kind of almost like <laughs> it's sort of parallel to uh, what we call the method, you know, uh, acting, mm -hmm. which Stanislavski sort of spent uh, a bulk of his adult life trying to figure out and work out 
And I think it's as, as profound and, and significant as, as that, frankly, what he was trying to do and, and the influence that he had, you know. He's a kind of chain, yeah, he's a chain smoking, hippy dippy American Stanislavski. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just I in think, terms of carving out, carving something out in the performing arts that's very specific and that he was obsessed with and, 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 and worked. And I think that's part of the reason he didn't. This is just me speculating because I, I, you know, but I think part of I think he was so drawn to the theater by which I mean, you know, the improv theater, but that that aspect of the theater. And, you know, as Al Pacino said, it just kept pulling him back in. He 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 couldn't let go. And that's where he was the most alive and the most driven. So, you know, he would be like a, he would be a local hire in Chicago when movies shot there. He shows up in things. He's in. He's a fun little part in The Untouchables by Brian De Palma. But uh, I think he just, he chose to stay focused on the theater. That's where he was the most alive. That's where he was the most connected with people. And if you choose to do that, that means you're not going to be a wealthy person who, who uh, you know, lives in a penthouse and buys Arabian horses. That's just a fact. <laughs> That's not part of that. And I think he accepted that. I think he also, there was the thing of, oh, kind of be nice to have some more money and uh, have all this acclaim that these other people have who I mentored. But I think he was drawn to, to remain in that world. And I think, you know, I'm a commercial actor. I have no problem with trying to make money in this business. But I, and I think it's admirable that he was so focused on that. And, and clearly he did have a great influence on it. So, you know. Right. But there comes a point, though, when you're at parties and people are like, he's still at it, kid. You got that perseverance. You got that stick to itiveness. Yeah. And you're like, oh my God, yeah. You. Yeah, like his, his uncle, I'm just making this up, but like, yeah, I can All imagine right. an uncle going, So, Adele, you still doing that comedy stuff? <laughs> right. You ain't anything got, I would have heard of? Yeah, you ain't anything <laughs> I've seen? Yeah. Why don't, Why don't you, you just go on Saturday Night Live? Yeah, exactly. Saturday Night Live. The Times, like, you hear that. Go to NBC. Just yeah. drop off your resume. Yeah. Yeah. That's relatives always say that to actors. Always. They're like, God. why don't you be on this show? I'm like, yeah, great. Well, you mean I just show up and say, put me on? All right. Right. No work. You work should be on Friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Should yeah. be on Friends, Del. <laughs> yeah. But I think what was cool about you Del. Imagine Del. Like, Del on Friends would be amazing. <laughs> like I Phoebe's, Phoebe's new uh, Phoebe's, Phoebe's new boyfriend. New boyfriend. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, that's funny. But what I was going to say is one thing I really ended up loving about Dell is that he and that like we have like he's a bohemian and that's mm -hmm. something that we don't really have anymore. Like this idea oh. that like, you know, artists Amen. can be like eke out a living. You can earn just enough and you can have a place that's a mess, but full of amazing people and ideas. And um, I think in our economy, it's not really possible to do that anymore, yeah. but it that time in mid-century America, it really was. And, you you know, so many people came out of that fringe, mm. whether you're talking about comedy, music, yeah. you know, that Greenwich and Village vibe. That's very true. And, and the interesting thing, another interesting thing to me is when this American improv started in the 50s with The Compass and Dell and then Second City with people like... Uh, Alan Arkin and, you know, uh, Nichols and May. Doing, when they started doing this stuff in the uh, Compass was in St. Louis, Second City was in Chicago. But when they were all very young starting this out, they were just young creative people 
who wanted to express themselves. And it actually wasn't about getting into show business. And again, I have no problem with getting into show business. I, I'm happy to make a living at it and do what you have to do. But they were just being creative. And at the time also, there was no pipeline from improv to right. being on TV. Mm -hmm. That wasn't a thing. <clears throat> so there was no precedent for, oh, I'm going to develop improv and right. then I'll be on TV and stuff. So I think that original spirit of it was something that he carried through his entire life. It was just about being mm -hmm. creative and it wasn't yeah. about making a living. And again, I'm not like, don't sell out, man. I'm just saying that he, <laughs> you know, I, I think that was part of what, what drove him was that innate sort of pure spirit of just creativity and trying to express oneself. And right. you know, that's another reason why he's kind of this admirable figure, as well as a guy who obviously drove a lot of people crazy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> There's something about improvisational theater that attracts the deranged. I'm obsessed with it. I'm addicted to it. Dell was the one voice in the wilderness, which is like improv is a performance medium in its own right. People will come just to see comedy improvisation and it works by itself. It's not a means to anything other than the thing. Although improvisation has been established as comedy, Close has a greater vision for it. I envision some time in the future, possibly, a company of thoroughly trained people that uh, could pull off a full-scale improvisational evening. Of course, there's going to be a built-in failure rate. That was always the problem with improvisation you can't depend on. You don't know if it's going to be entertainment. It might just be, oh, look at these people shitting themselves. That's always a distinct possibility. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Uh, Heather, you seem to be a weird Americana doc. Well, I call it weird Americana docs. Um, mm -hmm. American movie. I mean, mm -hmm. heavy metal uh, parking lot. The stuff you wrote, I was like, yes, yes, mm -hmm. yes. Love it, love it, love it. I was trying to think of recent stuff that I, I've loved, and there's there certainly is stuff, but it's, I kind of figured it was stuff that everyone else is watching anyway, and yeah. like... I don't know. It, it also doesn't have the emotional pull for me that some of those. We've right. been talking about that HBO series, which is about that tiny news station in Nevada. 
Have you watched no, my, Small Town? My husband cut the pilot. Of oh, Ooh. there you go. Oh. Small Town News. Yes. Wow, that's awesome. Um, so you're in a documentary family. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we <laughs> yes. got to talk about that too. Yeah. Yes, we are like the mafia of documentary over here. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. The Sopranos of documentary. Well, this is like getting made. Being on this podcast. That's yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Hey, wear my ring, babe. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's because uh, I I love weird Americana shit, dude. And I like the ones that you picked were so awesome. American movie is still like to me just such a masterpiece. You it's know? so effortless in the way things come together. Um, I don't know. I have such a soft spot for that film. I know. It's so good. And now, like, now docs are so stylized, you know? Like, you have to keep people's attention. And one thing I loved about uh, For Mad Men Only, it doesn't, didn't seem over the top. You, There's a lot of nope. different... <laughs> mm, there's a lot of different... Did you think it was? There's a lot going on. I mean, there's a lot. In a good it's way, busy. I think. It's busy, but it tells the story well. Sometimes, though, you watch a doc and you're like, now it's animation. Now it's cut out cardboard characters. Now it's a black and white movie with from like the 50s. You're talking about it's the like, Sparks documentary. I so am talking, talking about, about the Sparks documentary. <laughs> I knew when you said those all, all those examples, I'm like, that's, <laughs> that's what you're thinking of. I tried not to say it, but yes. <laughs> I mean, it's just too much. It's too much. And it like my mind just goes somewhere else because I'm like, what am I watching now? Like, what different technique of filmmaking am I watching? Mm -hmm. But I I, th I thought what you did was wonderful. Like the the edits, the the different display of the storytelling, uh, James and and Josh and you know those scenes were awesome. Did you guys do a lot of rehearsals for that, or is it, or did you improvise? No, I guess those are written. I'm going to answer my own question. Those are written, <laughs> those are already pre-written, right? Well, yeah, they were they were written Heather can clarify, but yeah, they they were the scenes were written based on again actual things that Dell had said and written mm. himself. And then yeah. Yeah, it was just shot like one usually shoots the movie, we kind of blocked it out and figured it out. I mean, we 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 Heather and I would be in contact a little bit before we started shooting, and I had some ideas about sort of how to perform it, which sort of, you know. Were you, were you being difficult, James? Did. And I was difficult, yeah, yeah, yeah. you yeah. know. <laughs> I, uh, I insisted on my latte being made yeah. just right. And Your trailer. I'm not sharing a trailer but with freedom, yeah. Another fun thing is uh, I knew a lot of the actors, like Josh Fadum, who plays John uh, Ostrander, I've known for years, and uh, and uh, I, I've known uh, Matt Walsh for years too. So there was a sort of easy, easy kind of chemistry and ease, you know, in those scenes. That was so fun to watch, you guys. I yeah, bet. it looked fun. It was like, yeah, we ended up kind of, you know, because we wanted to cast like Dell adjacent people that either studied uh, in improv or had an interest, you know? And so a lot of them ended up kind of knowing each other. And um, we kind of like the, the rule we set was like, yes, James as Dell, those lines are locked. Those are things that Dell actually said. We're not going to F with them too much, but um, everyone else you can go as far as you want. So, you know, some people kind of stuck closer to the script. Other people like, um, uh, Lennon Parham and Lauren Lapkus like went completely off book and right. you know were bonkers and amazing with their their improv. So awesome. it was kind of like a great you know each we treated each one as like a little like mm -hmm. what do you want to do today? Yeah, 
That's awesome. That's and was that did that take a bulk of like time or was that like set aside for different like shooting schedules or what was like the bulk of the time that was focused on the doc? Was it the I interviews? Mean, we shot those in like four days and like edited it for four years. So that's kind of <laughs> right. Yeah, maybe that's a better way of saying that, like how much of the outline of everything had been figured out. So you knew what you needed to get in those scenes like that was you'd shot that in the first few years of uh it took you like i read somewhere was it six years that you worked on this yeah so going back to at this point what is that like yeah 2016 2015 yeah i don't want to talk about it a lot of early i mean our stuff my stuff was my stuff was shot like what two or three years ago or something two years ago I yeah, like probably. Like mm-hmm. Let's say two. Let's say two. Mm-hmm. It was about two, yeah. <laughs> it's a couple of months ago. And but you, you know, but that's, I came into it after you'd been prepping it for a long time, obviously. Yeah, so we had a lot of interviews. We were, you know, we had a very, you know, we had a rough cut at that point, mm-hmm. and we knew what the story was about, and we knew what kind of needed to happen. Um, but we, you know, once we got the, the scenes... Then we had a, the task of like, you know, weaving these two methods of storytelling together because it was, it was, you know, people I think have an automatic prejudice to fiction in their nonfiction. You know what I mean? Like, right. I think that, you know, we're used to seeing cheesy recree on like, you know, a crime show and that's fun. And, uh, you know, but to, to weave in and out of a narrative world, you know, we, it took a little, uh, give and take. Yeah. Well, yeah. That make- I was going to say like, yeah, like having wasteland as a kind of a, a, a structure or something that you could visually weave between those two things. It was like kind of a, an amazing gift. Cause like, I didn't even know about wasteland at all. I was only familiar with like, you know, I knew he had put out like a comedy album, I think in the fifties or something, but I, I didn't even know that, like, of all, like, the mainstream comics companies, DC, doing a Del Close-based comic. <laughs> and then, like, back then? Yeah, yeah. When you think about it, yeah. That's insane. Well, so, it's like, how did he not become a household name? Like, do you think it's most was mostly him keeping himself from that? I, I, th- I mean, I agree with James. I think that there was a... a you know, there, there were layers there. And, I, but I think that one of the more authentic layers was that he liked being engaged and liked being able to sort of turn on a dime with whatever was sort of creatively engaging him that day mm-hmm. or that month. Um, and he was not going to bend for someone's, you know, production schedule necessarily, or, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I think. Or it wasn't he, the goal, right? Like that wasn't, that wasn't the goal to like, he wanted to act in some things occasionally, but yeah. His, yeah. He talked to different time, people. Yeah. Some of them say like, Oh yeah, he, he really wanted to be famous. He was a total star fucker and, and he, he would have loved to have been famous. Others say no way, man, he's a purist, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm sure he was all of those things at different times. Mm-hmm. What I love about it is that like, it's very true to me that like any art, but like comedy, is what we're talking about. Like there's a constellation, it's like an ecosystem and it's, you know, you're, there's people you're going to end up hearing about and loving and falling in love with, but like the whole, th- like, it's not, you know, this is getting a little, you know, hippie. Go, hippie, ahead. But, like, Go ahead, man. 
do it. It's, San Francisco, it's, think, it's perfect, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think um, one of our characters says it's not about any one person. And I think uh, Del, what Dell's story tells you is that there are just forces at work in any art form, you know, and this art, this force that we look at is called Del Close. But, mm. you know, you know, it's not... It's an ever-growing, changing thing, and you need these people that kind of go out further than your, you know, perf- regular, lovable performers mm-hmm. to sort of keep the whole thing moving forward. Right. It's in- it's interesting. Like, what, what's his archetype? Like, is he a sage? Is he a seeker? Like, what is the Del Close mm. archetype? You know, what do you say? Because I we've done a couple interviews where I've used the word seeker. Well, it seems yeah. that way. Yeah. It seems that he was seeking for something. And I, I have a, te- I feel the like seeker types are generally first and people who are first generally don't reap the rewards. Right. Like it's mm-hmm. the people that come behind them. That's right. Yep. The, in the military, the avant-garde are the first ones out and they're the ones that get shot, you know? Oh. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. There you go. Never be avant-garde. <laughs> my my shit is, my stuff front is so commercial. Line. Front of the line. Don't be front of the line. I, I mean, it's like with, with like geniuses like Del Close, you know, it's like, what is, what's his driving force? What is his, is he, did, I feel like he had this like floating philosopher king thing, but also like this disheveled, crazy seeker type. And maybe even like someone who is just strewn with anxiety and self doubt, like maybe it was all of those things, but like, do you have a feel for that after spending years with footage and interviews? I think he was a seeker. I think that he, you know, I think he was obsessed with the human brain and how we perceive reality and, um, and how we, yeah, like, uh, expanding the brain through whatever chemicals you want to put into it. But I mean, I, we make light of that, but I think for him that was, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of more in line with what we're seeing now with psychedelics where people are really, you know, doing serious scientific research. I think he was super interested in how the brain works and how the human animal acts and how art can do different things. And I, I think he was always in pursuit of, of, of knowing more and trying to grab something true and give it to his students. Um, you yeah. know, and there's other stuff going on there too. And then, like, yeah, and so he's, he's basically a teacher uh, so he's sort of inherently behind the scenes all the time, you know? So it's not like you have, you know, he does sporadic film work now and then, but it's not like he's well known for a record of his own performing or anything. It's about these ideas that he was disseminating, mm-hmm. which I think are very <clears throat> personal and are, are a sort of at root about him figuring stuff out. <laughs> right. But then, uh, these ideas really uh, affected a lot of people who took them in different directions, you know, uh, as, as performers and improvisers. And yeah. I mean, when you hear people interview, they're always talking about, you know, he showed me how to be this way on stage, how to be true to myself, don't go for the cheap laugh, all this stuff. Uh, and then, uh, so, so that's, that's why he's such an interesting figure, because he's this sort of shadow... <laughs> Right. Figure in a way who's, you know, kind of behind the lights. Uh, 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 but the stuff he did was really uh, influential, you know? 
There's a scene that you guys do where he's doing like the I Ching and the, he seems interested in magic as well. So it's like he seems like yeah. he's just <laughs> voraciously just taking bits of all sorts of like shamanism and like mixing them together. Or do you yeah, know a lot about his totally. magic practice? I don't know much about his magic or- practice. Oh, yeah. He was uh, uh, a witch, uh, uh, like a card carrying Wiccan who went to meetings dressed in robes, like riding on the L. <laughs> um, he yeah. I mean, that I thing is I can't say That's that hard. times fast, but um, that was something that was like he did in a class one day and we had a recording of it and he was trying to use it to determine the no. focus of that semester's class. So, um, and he was very excited when he saw, you know, this is where, you know, the, the doubters, you know, will fall behind and the seekers will get ahead. And, you know, he, he loved that shit. He loved, you know, like later on he was looking at like electromagnetic theory and how ideas might be, you know, uh, go moving from person to person in an improv space, you know. Body phaetons. That's Scientology. That's the, the Hubbard. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I got a phaeton on you. Yeah. T- tell, tell him about your theory about. Oh, the yeah. Because when I when you're talking about the, uh, was the thing about it with Hubbard, it's like, oh, it makes sense now that UCB is across from the Scientology Center on Franklin. <laughs> like there's a, been a yeah. little dynamic. A friend there. of mine once made a joke about the church on Franklin Avenue. <laughs> Where uh, you you paid to advance at various <laughs> levels to achieve enlightenment, and she goes, "I need uh, CB." You know? yeah, right. <laughs> I right. definitely i i pay i paid one one level of that. Yeah, that's that's all. I <laughs> you got. paid your one level. I did my one level, the and then I'm like, I got to get out of here. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. I did my e meter, and then I got to go. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, talking about him, he sounds like a a literal character. Like this, you know, <laughs> he really is like. I think it's just sort of him being in that uh, of his time. Like, even though he's, like I said, he's older than the sort of what we call the 60s generation mm-hmm. by about a decade or so. But he's still sort of uh, coming into his own at a time when a lot of people are looking at, a lot of Western American people are looking at alternative ways of thinking mm-hmm. and, and growing. And so that's, in, and so he's doing it tenfold. Because he's already hardwired to think and behave that way, you know, to look elsewhere. Yeah. But yeah, he is like, I love, but he is a classic bohemian. He's not hippie. He's very much bohemian. Mm-hmm. That's a perfect description, Heather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah. Slightly I, earlier generation. Yeah. Of yeah. Sort of arty, arty uh, seeker. Yeah. I was surprised by his period in San Francisco, Summer of Love period, and being involved in the committee. I noticed that yeah, you, the committee. Yeah, you had a you had a, some interview with Howard Hessman, and I forgot who the other person was. It, that was like sort of briefly in there. Did you have a much longer discussion about that period of his life, his like San Francisco? Yeah, period? that was Alan Meyerson, who's the founder of the committee, actually. Um, and yeah, of course, we that could have been its own film. And I think somebody is making a film about the committee, yeah. um, which was really fun edgy political humor in, in, in San Francisco in the sixties. Um, my parents were at Berkeley in the sixties and they remembered, Oh, you know, uh-huh. you took your dates to the committee and it was yeah. really, you could see if they were down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The committee was specifically political. Right. And, uh, there was always a political thread to what they did. Uh, you know, and, but yeah, the thing of Adele like bounced around to all these different, uh, improv groups. Like, you know, he'd, he'd, you know, Second City, the committee, 
he and and then you know he'd he'd end up being sort of rejected and ejected <laughs> uh, in, in short order, you know. You had to get what you could get out of him, and then yeah, you know, and then it was get like out. too much. Get out of here. <laughs> Some people burn bright, man. Yeah, he certainly did. <laughs> Some people burn bright, and if you get too close, you're gonna get singed. <laughs> now, this was a story Della already told us that this is how his father died. He drank a quart of sulfuric acid, slashed his wrist, and then kept him alive for two days longer than Jesus hung on the cross. And I used to use that death to get sympathy and to get labor. So, okay, we're gonna do a scene now, Dave, where you will play the doctor that comes and tells me that my father died from drinking sulfuric acid. I looked at him and I said, I'm not doing that. That's not a good joke. I think Dell was always interested in making the audience gasp, and that would be equivalent to a laugh, which I never believed. They wanted to laugh. You have a responsibility to that audience, and without them, you got nothing, you know? You're a, you're a madman on a street corner. That is so funny, too, because those pictures that you go to and the, the editing is so clever because it's just like they're just like in like cotton sweaters. They look like they're out of LLB catalog. <laughs> and then the Dell's it's like a picture. family ties promo. <laughs> it is. It is. Canadian. Take, yeah. yeah. What did you do, baby? <laughs> and it's and then that picture. of I mean, I like, Yeah, go, please. Oh, no, go on, go on. I'm just saying there was that, that's a real oil and water situation, but I, I can't really blame oil or water. Mm -hmm. I mean, my God, that, that Toronto company with Dave Thomas are some of the most brilliant Fuck. Amazing. comedy actors in the world, you know, yeah. who sustained long careers that they're still sustaining. Like, I have great admiration for Dave Thomas. And I, I, oh I think Dave Thomas is like, I didn't sign up. To, I'm not here to do kind of some kind of weird therapy thing. Where we talk about your dead dad. Sure. It's not what I'm, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm no. here to do something else. And he spoke up. Yeah, it's And awesome. I would think Dell actually, I think part of Dell would have to admire that. <laughs> I think there was a grudging admiration between yeah. the two of them. Because Dave Thomas is also so smart and Dell oh, loved. Yeah. But I mean, I would, I would not say that Dave Thomas is a square who didn't like the hip <laughs> stuff that Dell was doing. You know, I just think he, he was like, this is not what I... I'm interested in creating. Right. And yeah. And I'm going to speak up because I feel like this is a waste of time. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's very indicative of the way it worked out for Dell in a lot of places where his uh, he he was a bit of a square peg <laughs> to put it mildly <laughs> in a lot of places, you know. Yeah. But I love I love that we got to dive into that Toronto company because yeah, James, like you said, they're like you know Catherine O'Hara, Eugene Levy, you know, and Gilda Radner was Martin Short. there. I mean, it's like what yeah. you know these are like genius people who were yeah. so at uh, you know so diametrically opposite from the Belushi and, and Murray like bad boy scene, you know. And I talked to some people who were like behind the scenes of. Um, uh, SCTV and they were like, yeah, we just didn't think you need to light your living room on fire to tell jokes, <laughs> nice. you know? And I was like, that's, that's funny. Cause you get sucked into the thing of like, yeah, you got to burn it out, you know? And then you hear those guys talking and you're like, oh, well, that is also true. <laughs> we yeah. should hear from normal people. Well, it's as like, well. it's like Toronto where it was the Beatles, Chicago was the Rolling Stones. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> they're both great. They both made beautiful music, but you know, yeah, I, I just, Dallas, Dallas, Dave Von Ronk or something. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's awesome. Or I, I just love that close up when you're, when you're like, and Marty Short just hated Captain him. Beefheart. Yeah. yeah. Oh, better. Better now. <laughs> John Valete. Yeah. Um, I just that that close up of uh, Martin Short when it was like, and Martin Short couldn't stand him, and it's just like he's got the Ed Grimley thing. On it. <laughs> it's so fucking yeah. That funny. one little shot kind of captured everybody's attitude toward <laughs> and, and then he got help, right? Because they took him back to Chicago, and then Joyce Sloan and and uh, who else picked him up was the. Bernie, Bernie, oh, Bernie. And, um, I mean, and that honestly happened, that was a cycle, you know, and that had happened. We don't talk about it cause you can't talk about everything, but right. Dell had been in at second city. Like, I think he was there like the year after it opened. So like 1959 or 1960. Um, so he was there like in the early days and he, he, you know, it was the same deal, you know, like the, whoever the PA was had to go like pick him up from <laughs> the mental right. hospital to, to like do a show. And it's, Times have changed, and we might call that enabling now, but at the time, you know, right. mid-century people didn't have that vocabulary that we have, the emotional vocabulary. Yes. Not many people went to therapy back then. Now we all speak the language of therapy, mm-hmm. and it's a wonderful thing. Um, I think it's, in, for me, watching this, knowing that there was a time before there was institutionalized improv, like now you have like improv is the gateway drug to most Mm -hmm. comedy you know like people take improv classes because they want to be a stand-up comic they want to get in sketch they want to do public speaking the fact that there was a time before Mm -hmm. like codified improv is just weird to me like it's like because like i I don't know have you guys ever seen a long like an outrageously good a a long form improv group sure sure it is magical Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I saw the improvised Shakespeare company. Oh yeah. Ugh, a couple of years ago, I was just like slow clapping my <laughs> way out of the theater. It was so fucking good. I had never wanted to turn around and get tickets to an improv show before, like leave and be like, I need two more tickets. That's never happened in my life. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, and like the fact that like there was, not, that didn't always exist is just incredible to me, you know, like that there, that wasn't there beforehand. Yeah. And I think it is, you know, even when, you know, in the six years that I was making the movie, I feel like it kind of got, you know, my, it was my awareness too, but like, I think it just in the zeitgeist, the more you just saw more and more people from that world selling shows and having shows and, you know, it, and on the writing side, I think it's very influential too. Like people who write a lot of our shows now that we love are, are getting this training too. Absolutely. Well, there's a, um, ever, there's a ad agency in San Francisco where their writers just do improv. And they develop ads out of just short form improv stuff, which is, I mean, it's insane that it's gotten into that kind of form. Like, would Dell like that, do you think? Or hate it? He'd hate it, right? Probably. Ah. Depends on what they're selling. <laughs> I mean, this is like Colgate. This is Coca-Cola. This is- I mean, yeah, and my producer, like, texted me, like, ah, I'm watching some, like, TED Talk, and there's a CEO talking about yes and. and no. We were uh. saying, like, Dell is rolling in his grave. And, uh. You know, but also he he wasn't, 
he liked a sense of anarchy too. So he might mm-hmm. like the mashup of corporate <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know. What do you think, James? Yeah, that he's infiltrated uh, yeah. <laughs> Madison right. Avenue. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, we just don't have those kind of people anymore. I, I don't want to sound like like some, you know, one of those people. Like, it used to be better back when. But it's true. Like, these type of American, this is so American, the story that we're talking about, is so, I think, uniquely American. And, mm-hmm. like, the, the, the those kind of figures like Del Close, just, I don't know if they can even exist anymore. It's too radical. It's too edge case. It's too drug-fueled and genius, like, I'm not sure. What do you guys think? Do you think we could still have? I mean, now we have that fucking Tesla guy, you know, uh, Elon Musk. It's like that's that's the closest well, we've got now, and it's. Well, I just think it's just a thing of whatever the next new thing in the arts is, <clears throat> and I don't know what that mm-hmm. is. But there's some equivalent to, I mean, imp- American improv has only existed since like the '50s. That's. Mm-hmm. Not even a hundred years, you know, it's, it's, uh, so whatever the next thing is, there'll be somebody who's, who's, there'll be someone who, for whatever reason, is a sort of guiding light <laughs> uh, for that thing. And there will be a new thing that we don't have the language for yet. Mm-hmm. And what, and so I think that's the thing. It's not about like, oh, crazy drug fueled people with broken windows in their apartments. Like, right. I don't know. That's that's just that's just peripheral to who he was. But so I think there will be other sort of mad seekers because whenever there's something new, the rules are still being figured out. And so I think you're going to have that. I don't know. I'm more glass half empty about people. I agree <laughs> I'm with full. you. I said it wrong. I'm more you're glass half full. full. Yeah, I was going to say you're an optimist. I kind of. When it's half empty, I want more. So that's <laughs> positive either way. My glass is empty, right? <laughs> I do. I agree, though, James. I think that he. Um, I think the stuff that you hear, you know, <laughs> there you go. Um, you know, like the. Uh, the throwing chairs and all the stuff that people joke, like you couldn't insure Dell now, like, mm-hmm. you know, um, that was besides the point and probably to the detriment of the point, you know, even though a lot of people like the, the wild anarchic side of him, like, I think it is, that's like the flourish or the, you know, on, on the real thing, which was the ideas and the experimentation and someone, yeah, someone's out there. Many people are out there figuring that out now for us and they might be high. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Or they could be just like Bo Burnham style, like totally, you know, maybe not like maybe that's the living room. Yeah. Maybe that's the style. Like just drink a fucking white claw and (laughs) tossle your hair a little bit and get to work. You know, maybe that's where we're at nowadays. It's hard to know, but man, I would be remiss if we don't talk about this fucking birthday party scene because that i was welding instructor alex declare knows vr training platforms like forge fx help students master their skills there's a big learning curve with welding virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact i normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. 
Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Like, what is happening now? (laughs) He's got oxygen mask on. And it's in the basement of can like what can you set that scene for us? Like what was happening? Yeah, so he basically had the death sentence from the doctor of, you know, it's gonna happen soon. Um he had emphysema and they, you know, he's a showboat. He wanted to he didn't want to like go softly. Um, so Sharna, his partner, um, put the call out to some of the old buddies like, um, Bill Murray, who stepped up, uh, and the two of them threw this party in the basement of the hospital. So the, the day before he died, they, he was like the center of this whole thing where people, you know, Harold Ramis and all the Chicago improv greats, you know, um, a bunch of Wiccans came, you know, a priestess came. That's insane. Yeah. And they just celebrated him, you know, one more time. And apparently he was like very on that night. Mm. That's, well, I didn't um, remember that it was literally the day before he died. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? That is, that is incredible. Yeah, and he wasn't, that's the thing, though. There's also a grain in him which I enjoy, which is he's a showman. And there's a kind of, there's also a sort of element of vaudeville, sideshows, P.T. Barnum. There's an old, you talk about American, there's... Right. There's an element of his, of him that just loves creating an effect and whatever the effect, however you create the effect doesn't matter. So it's not necessarily highbrow. doesn't have to be highbrow and intellectual because he really did kind of span showbiz when he was a young guy. He liked worked for a sideshow. He was like a magician's assistant or something like that, if I remembering right. Mm-hmm. And I think part of him always loved that kind of, you know, set up the tent and, uh, uh, <laughs> right, right. Move the elephants over there, move the elephants <laughs> and just create effects. And, you know, Bullshit people, right. dazzle them with bullshit. Well, wasn't it uh, Dr. Dracula? Wasn't that the guy that he worked yep. with? <laughs> yep, he worked Dr. Dracula's Tomb of Terror. Yeah. So I think part of a part of something that always ran through him was just a love of kind of old-fashioned show business and showmanship. Right. And he was also an intellectual person, you know, but but 
uh, I think he loved that. So he's like, this will be a good show. So right. yeah. a good show, me and me totally. in the basement dying of emphysema with all my friends, <laughs> Bill Murray running around and, you know. That's, <laughs> that story is insane. I was like, I could not believe. I was like, of course. Like, of course, this is how it ends for him. Like, this is then perfect. It's like, well, that, that was it. Good night, folks. Yeah. Yeah. Then he passes to the next dimension. James, <laughs> if, if, have you ever considered playing Dick Cavett? Oh, well, it's you would you be perfect. That. This has come up and I actually. Oh, it has. Yeah. And in fact, I did once in a thing, but I got cut. What you oh, just no. said. You just sounded just like him when you're like, that's it, folks, or whatever. There's a little, yeah, there's a little, I, I, I recognize that. There's a kind of, there's a certain, I don't know what it is. There's a kind of cadence he has or something. It's a where certain je ne sais pas. Where his voice is placed is, is sometimes parallel. Yeah, I once actually played him in a thing. It was a little brief sequence, but it. It, it got cut, and I don't have the footage, so. Oh. But I'm a big fan of his, and he's, sidebar, he's someone I really want to meet, but I, I've never had the chance. Well, he is a friend of the pod, so, no, I'm joking. Well, no, no, I'm joking. No, he's great. <laughs> Maybe I'll get a chance to play him again. And Dude, Heather, do a documentary about Dick Cavett. Dick Cavett. Oh, there you go. A very different document. Yeah, that's right. And then we it would be a very, what if... <laughs> What if it was the same kind of story though? Like Dick Cavage is doing drugs. Yeah, and no, he's a wild yeah. man. He is a he's a it's Mike Douglas. He was the wild one. Mike yeah. from Philadelphia. <laughs> Philly's own Mike Douglas. Yes, Philadelphia's own. Oh my God. That's amazing. Let's um okay, so um we we'll also want to talk about this. We we usually ask people to uh, pitch a doc. James, I don't know if you know about this, but basically a true story that someone you would love to see be made into a documentary. Um, and Heather, you picked Robert Smalls and Florence Kennedy, and I would love I love to see a Robert Smalls. Someone's gonna do it. Someone's got to do it. You right? Know. What a what a life for those of I mean, us who do not know what your reference. What to, do you want to do? The quick uh, synopsis of Robert Smalls. Yeah, uh, go please he, go ahead. Oh, uh, you know, I don't, I only know the headlines, you know, but he you know was a black man in the South during the Civil War, and he. Um, got the opportunity to sort of um, commandeer uh, a steamship uh, where he was uh, enslaved and he took over the steamship and set everybody, you know, uh, you know, kind of released everybody who was enslaved on that ship and ends up going to Washington and becoming a congressman. And he's like a, a huge figure of the, um, you know, uh, post, uh, civil war periods. So, and of just a fascinating, fascinating um, character. He like took over a Confederate transport ship for Christ's sakes by himself. And like, how much charisma do you have to have to like get that done? <laughs> There's sometimes I don't even want to go to like Safeway cause I'm not <laughs> feeling like it, you know, like it's insane. Like reading his wiki page, you're just like, this is incredible. And why don't we know more about this guy? Mm -hmm. I think that yeah. would make uh, an absolutely wonderful. There's a doc I've always wanted to have made about this bear that helped out in World War II. Ah. Um, hit Wachowski there. The the troops would use him, and they would put. I'm glad like, you said what side the bear was on. Yeah, yeah, it uh, was on our side for sure. Uh, and but they would like strap him with ammunition and food, and he would just go through like the lines and bring people food and and whatever. And he was like a partier. They would drink beers with him. 
They would smoke cigarettes with this bear. Uh, It was the Polish army had him and he helped out a lot. And then at the end of the war, he he was retired into a zoo in Ireland. And every year the soldiers would make a trip to that zoo and go meet him. And he would be like in the fucking enclosure and they'd be like, what's up? And he'd be like, whoa, what's up? And then they would throw him cigarettes and stuff. And he'd like, like smoke us. Yeah. Crazy. Like, oh, and I it, love this bear. I love this bear. <laughs> he's on the flag. He's is a huge. He's a huge fucking deal in Poland. Like there's oh. a like he's on this like f- Polish flag of the. Uh, it's fucking awesome. I don't know. That's James, good, Doc. James, can you think of anything? I was just trying to think. I was trying to pay attention to your bear story <laughs> sure. while I was thinking. It was engrossing. I understand. I, and, you know, I love, I, like I said, I love all facets of showbiz. A thing that just, I never thought of this before. It just popped into my head. Do you know who Uncle Floyd was slash is? The Anybody? N- if you don't know right away, then you don't know. So in New Jersey in the 70s, Uh-oh. Uh, in the mid-70s, <laughs> uh, where I grew up, uh, there was a guy who had a UHF TV show called The Uncle Floyd Show. And it was ostensibly a kid show. But it developed this huge cult following and like super arty people, bohemian people were super into it. The Ramones appeared on it. Uh, Years later, later, David Bowie wrote a song (laughs) that references Uncle Floyd. It was kind of like years before Pee Wee's Playhouse. It was Mm. like the hipster uh, kid show, you know, where it was a stance. It was like super low budget. It's literally a UHF show. It was on a channel called Channel 68. And Floyd was like a baby boomer guy who was probably in his 30s in the 70s, but wore like a plaid jacket and a pork pie hat and loved old show business and would play like, like he's rock and roll generation, but he was super into old timey stuff. So he'd play like, you know, old fashioned songs on the piano and do sketches. And he had a little repertory company of people and it was very beloved. And I would love, and I think that would be a great documentary footage of the show Talking to Floyd now. Yeah. Uh, I believe he's still alive. Uh, <laughs> and and just sort of that moment in time. Uh, and it, the thing about that show also was it was way pre-internet. So, and this is another thing that's interesting in the culture is it was the kind of thing that you had to discover. It was word of mouth. And then you had a sense of ownership, the good sort of sense, not the, right. you know. The, Dictorial. Yeah, 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 and and there was a sense of discovery, and this is our little thing, and also it was regional, so and it wasn't national, and there was no internet to see it nationally, you know, sharing so I VHS. Think there's a tapes. lot of, yeah, I think there's sort of a lot that as sort of, if you'll forgive this word, but a synecdoche for a great a sort of idea of well cultural of discovering some sort of alt. Alternative culture, let's put mm-hmm, it that way. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that it. Sort of rep- that's the show itself, but then the documentary would also be, this is my pitch, which I'm coming up with spur of the moment, would be about that idea. And maybe that sort of vanished part of America where, you know, there's, where someone had to tell you about a thing and then you had to go find it. You couldn't just click on your computer and find the thing immediately. Yeah. And, and, and that, so there you go. A documentary about the Uncle Floyd show from New Jersey in the 70s. Love it. I would, I would watch that. For sure. I would watch yeah. that. Yeah, take my money. Yeah, I would definitely. George, you got anything? Um, I Kind of a, a musical equivalent of that. I've been doing a little bit of research. I, I did a podcast about this with someone else. There's a musician who was based out of uh, 
uh, Madison, Wisconsin in the uh, night or Chicago in the nineties called Monotrona. And she sort of like overlap between like a weird noise rock scene in the Midwest. And then like, was it the early part of the electro clash scene in the early two thousands? And now she's like, I think a filmmaker in Poland or somewhere in Eastern Europe. That's so all coming together. Super bizarro uh, <laughs> performance art music person who I think I've been kind of just like, I think more people need to know about this person. So that's been something I've been kind of thinking about. But I don't, I don't know who's going to make it. or if, It sounds more like it would be a, a short or something, but not a feature, but yeah. Okay. Not a series then. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, fantastic. All right, so uh, for folks, you can see For Mad Men only uh, on Apple TV, Amazon, Google Play. And then you mentioned you're releasing a collectible Blu-ray on October 1st. Can you you say more about that? Yeah, we um, uh, had this great uh, comic artist, uh, Charles Forsman, do, uh, I wish I had it. I'll send you a copy, but um, uh, an adorable slipcover where he basically reimagines our movie as uh, an issue of Wasteland. So it's great. He, he's he got all kinds of little Easter eggs on there from the film. Um, and uh, that is available from Vinegar Syndrome on oh, yeah. uh, October 10th. Yeah, they wow. usually do horror reissues, right? I'm familiar with Yeah, do they a do a lot of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they have a real fun shop. So we were lucky to work with them. That that's, is awesome. That's the first I've heard of that. That's awesome. Oh, yes, I have one for you. I just oh, thank you. Oh, my God, I'm, I'm beside myself. <laughs> that's great. Thank you. Thank you. Jesus I had like, such a great hmm. experience making this. I mean, just I, my part is just a one small part of, of, of the whole film. Uh but it was such a great experience. It really was a top experience for me, working with Heather and, and, and being part of, you know, uh, just kind of, you know, telling his, telling his story a little bit. I really got a lot out of it. Oh, that's so nice to hear. That was so great working with you, James, and shooting those Fantasias was yeah, the Fantasia. such a great way to sort with the, of... <laughs> with the hippopotamus and the ballerina skirt and the... <laughs> and the little exactly. and the little mouse with the wizard head. Oh yeah. yeah. Did, did you all set to the great classical hits? <laughs> yeah. Did you hit Fatum in the head when you when you threw the? Uh... I don't remember. I was uh, the last yeah, time I watched did. it. The last <laughs> time I watched it, that that moment really made me laugh, and I didn't yeah. remember if that was scripted or that was yeah. After day. Uh, you can see a flash in, in Fatum's like, eyes. Yeah, like. When you actually hit me with it, <laughs> he was surprisingly game about it. Oh yeah, no, Josh. Josh likes a good physical joke. I, yes. I, yeah, I knew he would be into that. He's like, is that all you got? When I throw a paperback, it's a light paperback. (laughs) (laughs) Heather, James, thank you so much uh, for being on SubTalk. We really appreciate it. Really enjoyed for Mad Men only. And um, I can't wait to see what you guys do next. So if you make another doc, please come back on. James, if you want to talk about a doc, please come back on. It was great to have you. Thanks so much, you guys. Have much fun with this. A lot of fun. Tons. So much. (laughs) All the fun. All of it. Thank you, guys. I'm having a good time. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about SupDoc at SupDocPodcast.com. 
recapping reality since 2015. Our theme song was written by David Siegel. Our show was engineered by Will Scoville. Our associate producer is Nick Coltis. Please donate to the show through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash subdocpodcast. If you want to help us in other ways, please share the show with a friend. Join the Doc Talk and check out our hot takes, pictures, and videos on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We're SupDoc Podcast on all those platforms. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. To find out more about my and George's comedy gigs, check out our About Us page on our website. And SupDoc is by Doc fans for Doc fans. So if you want to advertise got a film or opinions you want to share just hit us up we'd love to hear more from you and what you're docking out on so email us at supdocpodcast at gmail.com 